and this is the double portion of matot and masay that we read at the very end of the book of the midbar or numbers and it comes it's interesting because it comes oh yes I did I haven't been able to look at it but I did get it thanks now it does come at the uh, end of the midbar and it's interesting that it comes as we enter the month of Av we're entering the three weeks of mourning of, I mean we're in the three weeks we're entering the month of Av right before the ninth of Av which is the time when the Jewish people intensify the period of mourning today is actually the first of Av of this year so there are some interesting things in this Parsha these two Parsha oh. the Parsha starts out with something that is very important oh hi Bob nice to see you um, it starts out with something that is very important for all people and this is the idea of vows and oaths and fulfilling those vows now on a very simple level what that means is and what that means to everyone is that your word your word is your bond that what you say is what you mean and it's and there's a very interesting saying in Judaism and when you think about it it's very true that if you are frivolous with your words and you don't mean what you say here in this world that the court of heaven is not going to take you seriously when you pray and this is very very serious thing to think about how important our words are how important it is that when we say we're going to do something that that's what we do even to the point of and I'm and I know this might be nitpicky but I'm one of those sticklers for punctuality that when you say I'm going to be here at a certain time you make every effort to be there at that time otherwise you've broken your word and when you stop and you think about it it could even be kind of like even a form of theft because if the person is expecting you at that time and you don't show up then you're in essence stealing his time so it's really important that we think very very hard very very carefully before we commit ourselves to something now there are there are a lot of laws about vows and oaths in Judaism one of the things is one of the things that we should understand is that there is a difference between a vow and an oath a vow is called a nadir and an oath is called shavua so and a vow is a promise that restricts somebody in which he restricts himself regarding a certain object for instance if he vows that he won't drink wine okay and then if an object is not involved 
the term nadir, the term vow, does not apply and the term oath applies. For instance, a person decides that he's going to restrain himself from a certain activity. Like he says, I'm not going to sleep at night. There's no object involved. If he says, I'm going on a diet and I'm not going to eat this certain kind of food, that would be a vow. But if he says, um, I'm not going to, um, or I am, or let's make it positive. Say, I'm going to go out and run every day. Well, that's an oath. See, there's a difference because, it, and it's a subtle difference, of vowing something that has something involved with it or taking an oath. Now, in Judaism, it's discouraged to take an oath. It's discouraged. Vows and oaths are discouraged. And the reason that vows and oaths are discouraged is because it's so easy to break it. You're running a risk that you're going to break this vow. And so it's considered foolhardy for a person to make vows. But like I said, the words of a person are so binding on him that we even have like Kol Nidre in, on Yom Kippur where we disavow the oath that we have taken. Some people misunderstand what that means. But this is like cleaning the slate. It's not saying, well, I'm going to promise this, but then on Yom Kippur I can get out of it. That's not what it means at all. It's saying, I'm going to clean the slate of where I have spoken out of turn, where I've spoken foolheartedly. God forbid. And that's what that's about. Now, there's an interesting story in Midrash. A man named Rabbi Shimon ben Antipater was famed for his hospitality. However, a strange rumor reached the sage's ears. It said that when he invited guests, he served them well, accompanied them part of the way, but before turning back, he would give them a severe beating. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai was informed of this, he summoned Rabbi Yehoshua and told him to visit the man's house to investigate the matter. It almost sounds funny, so I'm kind of laughing here, sorry. Rabbi Yeshua arrived at Rabbi Shimon's house and was cordially welcomed. He and the master of the house sat down to study Torah until the evening and were served a good supper. The next morning, Rav Shimon told him, let's go to the bathhouse. When they returned, they were served another satisfying meal. Thanking his host, the sage said, I must leave now. Who will accompany me? I myself, replied the master of the house, and this is a very hospitable thing to do, that the master of the house himself would accompany the guest out part way. That's a very hospitable thing, seeing somebody off. And you're considered... Um, guilty if you don't do that guilty of not caring about the person's well-being after he leaves your house and that's another subject Rabbi Yehoshua walking ahead with host nervously anticipated 
the beating that would come any second. The time of the parting arrived without incident, and the host made ready to return to his house. Rabbi Yehoshua called him back and said, Please permit me to ask you a question. Why do you usually whip your guests, but you do not strike me at all? Rabbi Shimon said, You're a Talmud Hacham, and you conducted yourself nobly in my home. The other guests usually made all types of oaths. They would swear not to eat or drink or do certain things, and then they disregard their promises. I have heard that one who takes an oath and profanes it deserves the punishment of forty lashes. He certainly does, agreed Rabbi Yahushua. Forty from you, forty from me, and another forty from the sages who sent me to investigate this matter. So this is considered a very important thing that a person should um, keep his word. Now it's interesting when we look at this story too that this rabbi decided to take it upon himself that he was going to punish these people for being rash in what they said. And on the one hand you could say, well, you know, that he kind of had a lot of nerve to think that he was that he should take that upon himself. But really what he was doing because he was a sage and he could see these people deep into their souls, he could see this. He realized that if he gave them the beating, he himself gave it to them because they warranted it, they deserved it, then they weren't going to be punished later by heaven, probably worse. And this was his thinking, that the person was going to need, and we see this in the very last part of the Parsha Oath, and we're going to talk about this in more detail tomorrow night, but the person needed certain punishment. For the sake of his soul, he needed this. So, that's why he would do this. Now, in case a person would make a vow, there were ways for him to get out of it. A vow or an oath is binding when taken by a boy from the age of 13 and a girl from the age of 12. In other words, by the time the person is old enough to be considered an adult according to the law, that he is considered to be um, responsible for himself in keeping the law. Then he is supposed to keep his vow. Now there are some ways that a vow can be invalidated. If a person takes a vow or an oath and then realizes it's too difficult for him to fulfill, he can either go to a Tommy Hacham, who is an expert in the Hoha, or to three laymen. And they can absolve him on the basis of his declaration that at the time of taking the vow he was not fully aware of all its implications. Had he realized all the difficulties of upholding it, he would not have acted so. Thus, the vow was an error on his part. He explains the details of his promise to the judge or the judges who then determine whether circumstances allow him to grant an absolution. And if he discovers a point of regret which the person who took the vow or oath was not aware of at the time, he may absolve him. 
Now, there was a, another story in the Midrash that talks about how vows can lead to terrible tragedy. The Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar treated his vassal, the king, the Jewish king, Sidkiyahu, with great respect. When Sidkiyahu came to Bavel to affirm his allegiance to the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar granted him free access to his palace. He appointed Sidkiyahu ruler over the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Sur, and Sidon. Sidkiyahu once entered Nebuchadnezzar's private dining room unannounced and found him tearing the limbs from a living hare as he ate them. Eating the limbs of a living animal is forbidden by Noahide law even to a non-Jew, as you know. Moreover, Nebuchadnezzar did not wish to publicize his cruel and crude habits. Embarrassed, Nebuchadnezzar commanded Sidkiyahu, Swear, you will never reveal what you have witnessed. I swear, replied Sidkiyahu. Later, however, he regretted his oath not to disclose the emperor's shameful conduct and requested that the great Sanhedrin annul his oath. Their annulment proved fatal to them. Once when the five kings governed by, governed by Sidkiyahu were conversing, they ridiculed Nebuchadnezzar. You should be emperor rather than he, they flattered Sidkiyahu. You're a descendant of David's royal dynasty, and your conduct is nobler than his. You may be sure that he is a cruel man, Sidkiyahu promptly agreed. Once upon entering his dining room, I surprised him devouring a rabbit alive. The five kings immediately dispatched a messenger to Bavel to inform Nebuchadnezzar. The Jew, whom you grant free access to your palace, claims he observed you eating an, a live animal. Nebuchadnezzar considered Sidgiahu's offense treason, but was uncertain whether to punish Sidgiahu alone or the entire Jewish people. Nebuchadnezzar traveled to the city of Daphna near Antioch and ordered Sidkiahu and the members of the Sanhedrin to appear before him. Nebuchadnezzar gave the Jewish sages seats of honor. Seat yourself, he ordered, and expound your Torah to me. The sages translated for him one Parsha after another. When they arrived at the subject of vows in Parsha Matot, the emperor queried, if someone wishes to annul a vow, may he do so? He can go to a sage, they replied, who has the authority to annul his vow. Now I know how Sidkiahu betrayed me, the emperor accused them. He came to you, and you annulled his vow. In great fear of being put to death or cruelly tortured by the emperor, the sages appealed to the Almighty to recall the great merits of their forefathers and to assist them. But Hashem did not accept their prayers. Nebuchadnezzar commanded that each member of the Sanhedrin 
be tied by his hair to a horse's tail and be dragged from Yerushalayim to Lud. This tragic event was one of many that foreshadowed the destruction of Yerushalayim and the Beit HaMikdash. Now this is a very drastic example of vows, of the danger of vows. Now if a girl takes a vow and her father hears it the same day she is and he disallows it then she is excused from fulfilling her vow if a woman makes a vow and her husband hears it the same day he can disallow it but if they wait if they hear the vow and then they wait they don't say anything they wait then the child the girl or the wife is still obligated to keep that vow. Now, interestingly, we see something in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, Devarim, in which Moshe is described as Ish Ha Elohim, in other words, like the husband of Hashem. And this is how it goes. Moshe was uniquely privileged to annul the vows taken by the Almighty like an ish, like a husband. After the sin of the golden calf, Hashem threatened, I swore that whoever worships powers other than me shall be destroyed. Moshe, the master of defense, the master of defense attorney uh, for Klal Israel pleaded, don't you teach me at Har didn't you teach me at Har Sinai? The laws of annulling vows, a teacher who wishes that others obey his rulings, must himself act according to with them. When the Jews worship the golden calf, they assume that their actions were permitted. Should you then not annul your vow? Wrapping himself in his talit, Moshe sat down in the role of the Talmud Hacham who annuls vows, and the Almighty, as it were, stood and requested of Moshe that he absolve him from his vow. Now this is something that we could really, you know, it's a little bit difficult for us to envision this, but when we see that Hashem says, I swear I will destroy them, well, there has to be a way, according to the law of uh, the Torah, there had to be a way that Hashem himself would be able to say, okay, I've changed my mind. And he would be fine, because he set the laws about making vows or breaking vows, what the consequences was, uh, what the consequences were, and so this is where this midrash comes from. That Moshe Rabbeinu, in his um, capacity of pleading for the people of Israel, actually acted as the Ish, the husband of Hashem. And said, I heard you say that, and I, you know, you can disallow it right here in front of me. And that is really, when you stop and you think about it, that's really incredible stuff. So this is, this is the part here, the Parsha about, part of the Parsha about vows. And we're going to see it play out here in a little while. But first, before we go on, 
I would like to see if you have any comments about vows or oaths, if you have a question, before we go on to the next thing. Anybody? wedding vows well see there you go and this is a this a wedding a marriage is a social contract and it is a vow it's a social contract and that's why we have in the, in the Torah we have a way for people to actually get out of those as well and it's called a divorce called a get. Um, and there are laws about that. There is a procedure about that. What is what is the grounds for the divorce? And then how the divorce is carried out? There's a whole process of divorce in the in the Torah. And um, actually and that's also a social contract. And actually this was a mercy and I'm going to tell you why because at the time that Hashem instituted divorce just like he instituted these ways of annulling vows he instituted a way to annul those vows as well and it, it's a little bit different wedding vows are a little bit different but he, in, he instituted a way to dissolve a marriage because at the time in the world men could take a wife and if he got tired of her a man could get tired of her or it was displeased with her he could just send her away she was still married she was still married to him so she had no recourse she couldn't really go home to her father she couldn't really there wasn't really a lot of job opportunities out there for women at those at that time and she could not get married again she could not get married again she was not allowed the man could but she could not and so Hashem instituted the uh, divorce and what that did was it freed and this was strictly for the sake of the women it freed that woman to be able to start over it freed her from being married to this man and she was able to get married again as a matter of fact in a, in a get ceremony the man has to say you are free to to marry any other man you are free he has to say that he has to verbally free her so he himself, in front of a judge, in front of the Beitin, disavows his vow of holding her to himself. 
and right, it's not like the same day that it's heard. It's not. So it's a little bit different. But there is in the Torah there there is a way around a way out of that. Because we live in a society where human as human beings we're not, we're far from perfect. So it's good that Hashem has this understanding of human nature and he makes these allowances in the Torah through Torah law that there is a way for us to deal with situations that happen in life. You know, let's face it. There are times where a marriage is just not healthy and you have to end it. I know that that's not what we like to think of. It's not the way we like to think, but we know, you know, realistically, we know there are marriages that are not healthy and they have to be ended. So, does that answer your question, Alan and Arlene? Okay, good. A lot of times, because of coming from a Christian background, sometimes people have a misunderstanding about that subject. That if you look at it from a Torah perspective, it's a totally different story. Okay, now the next thing that happened, and I don't really want to dwell on this very long, is they there was the war with Midian, and Moshe was commanded by Hashem not to participate in that war. So Pinchas bin Elazar was given the seats because he knew that he would be meeting Bilaam, the bad guy, you know, the black magician. He was going to be meeting him on the battlefield. And he would defeat him with that crown of the high priest, the seats that has um, Le Hashem on engraved into it and so that was the war now I want us to go kind of skip over that and go to because we're talking about vows we're going to go to the story of B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain deciding that they want their portions on the east side of the Jordan. Now, they had bought great herds of cattle and sheep, and they were concerned that maybe if they would cross the Jordan, that there would not be room there for them to have these large ranches and grazing places and so on. And they they used some very very um, interesting logic in that they said, well, we have all these herds. And we don't want to, we need more pasture land for them. And we wouldn't want there to be a danger of our herds going to somebody else's pasture land and eating their grass. And so we want to be sure that we have plenty for our, our herds and cattle. And so first Moshe is really upset with them. And he says, what do you mean? You know, you're you're repeating the sin of your fathers. You're wanting to stay over here on the east side of the Jordan. And you're going to dishearten all the other tribes. How can you do such a thing? 
And they said, no, 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 it's not like that at all. In fact, and here is where they kind of messed up. They said, we will build pens for our herds and cities for our children. Got that priority there? And then we will go over and they made a vow. They vowed they would leave their families on that side of the Jordan and they would go and help the rest of the people, the other tribes, to secure their land. Well, this was going to take 14 years of them being away from their family. But they kept this vow. Moshe told them that if they would do what they vowed, they would do that, then he would agree to let them stay on that side of the Jordan. And in fact, it's interesting that the half tribe of Manasseh also was on that Manasseh was also on that side of the Jordan. Now, um, we see that one thing is that the tribes of Ruvain and God were were very concerned about money. They were very concerned about their possessions. And, and Moshe was a little critical of them about this. Like, you know, where are your priorities? You're just looking at getting ahead, having stuff. I mean, it's like a, it was a precursor to the mentality of the Jews of the diaspora. Sorry, but it was a precursor to what we see many times in the exile. Throughout the years, I mean, part of that was just simply a need for survival. But now, a lot of it is, no, we live well here and we don't want to leave and we don't want to go to Israel. And that was what Moshe was concerned about was that they were, they had this attitude of really not wanting to go into the land because they thought they could be so much better off on the east side of the Jordan. They didn't want to give it up. But, incidentally, when these men went and they, they fulfilled their vow, they fought with, for their brothers in order to be able to secure this land for them, their homeland, they fought for their brothers. They did um, fulfill their vow. But when they got over there, they looked and they saw the lusciousness and the wonder, you know, wonderful land. And they thought, oh, maybe we made a mistake. Too late. They had already chosen to be on that side of the Jordan. So, now... We see that that was actually Reuben and God who came and asked for this um, this land, but it was really too large for just two tribes. It was the land that had been taken from Sichon and Og, and so it was really too large for them. So Moshe decided to choose half the tribe of Manasseh to also share that piece of land. Now, he was repaying Manasseh, an old debt. He was the its founder, had caused the founders of all the tribes to tear their garments. 
Now, what do we mean by that? So, Manasseh is torn in half. All the deeds are repaid by heaven. Mida keneged mida. Everybody understand mida keneged mida? You remember what we said that means? Measure for measure. Mida keneged mida. Kind of try to say that yourself. Because it's a really important concept. That what we do has a consequence. What we do is going to come back to us. Whether good or bad, we are going to reap what we sow. Mida keneged mida. Yaakov's sons caused him to rend his garments when they brought him the false news of Yosef's death. Hashem therefore made them rend their garments too when the Egyptian viceroy Yosef's cup was found in Binyamin's sack. They rent their garments in despair. Yosef caused his brothers to rend their garments. In return, his descendant, Yahushua, rent his garments. When B'nai Israel lost the war against the city of Ai in the conquest of the land of Canaan, Yahushua tore his garments upon learning the bad news. Binyamin, for whose sake the brothers tore their garments, when they heard that Yosef was arresting him, had a descendant who was forced to rend his garments. Mordechai, the tribe of Binyamin, tore his garments when he learned of Haman's evil decree to exterminate the Jews. Yosef's son, Manasseh, pursued the tribes to demand back his father's goblet. He was the direct cause of his brothers rending their garments. Mida connected Mida. His portion was torn in half. Half his inheritance was in Eretz Israel, and the other half on the east side of the Jordan. So we see this, how measure for measure, Hashem brought these things back, maybe not to the exact person who did it, but to his tribe, to his descendants. Measure for measure, these things were brought back to them. So each of these the tribes had made a vow. They had made a vow that they were going to um, help the other tribes to settle the rest of the land, and they kept their vow. This is really an amazing thing. And it's interesting how the partial is laid out. How the partial is laid out where we can see each thing that happens as... Um, following suit here now I'm kind of wanting to just like overview here so just a moment please I'm going to go to the next thing Ooh, I wish I could get that bigger now the next thing is that this was the itinerary you can read it in the Parsha the itinerary of the stations at which the people traversed in the wilderness. So went from Rama Ra'asat to Sukkot Ramesses to Isam to P 
Hachirot, Timara, and each place something happens. Ailim, the shores of the Yamsuf, the wilderness of Sin, Dafka, Alush, Rafidim, the Sinai Desert, Kivrot Hataava, this is where they lusted for meat and they were killed. Hatsarot, and this is where Miriam was stricken with leprosy. Rizma, where the spies were sent out to investigate the land. Um, Ramon Peres, Livna, Risa, Kahelasa, this is where Korach assembled his band. Har Shefar, and this is the mountain that brought forth beautiful fruit. Harada, where the people trembled because of the plague that God, Hashem brought on them. Mahalot, Tachat, Terach, Miska, where the waters were pleasant. Hashmona, Maserot, Benei Ya'akan, Hor Ha Gidgad, Yat Basa, Avrona, Etzon Gever, Kadesh, and this is Hashem's name was sanctified here when he decreed that Moshe and Aaron would not enter the land. Kadesh means sanctified. Hor Hahar is the mountain where Aaron passed away. Salmona, Hunon, where the swarms of snakes attacked the Jews. And this is the place of the um, the bronze serpent. Ovot, Iyim, Bivon God, Almon, Div la, sam, uh, la Sama, and this is the place known as Nachliel, and this is where um, Miriam's well disappeared. Harei ha Avarim, and that's where Moshe looked at the land, and then Beit ha Yesmi. Yisi Shimot and the plains of Moab. Now, the Torah is very, very specific to record all of these places. We have in the book of Bamidbar numbering and so on, and we have all of these different things that happen, and we don't even get it in really from Parshot to Parshot in a chronological order. But then there is this listing of the places where the people had camped at each time. And one of the things that we're supposed to learn from this is that Hashem moved the people of Israel from place to place. The reason that he moved them from place to place is like it's like in our lives. When we're moved from one incident to another. We might even be moved from one physical life to another. I know I have. But, maybe not. But even so, in our lives, incidents, we're moved from place to place. 
And in each one of those stations where we're sitting, each one of the things that we're having to go through, whether it's wonderful things, you know, like the place with the luscious fruits, the oasis of the 70 palms, you know, wonderful things could be happening to us, or whether it's very trying things, like the bitter waters, the, the snakes, the plagues. It could be very trying things. But each place that Hashem took the people of Israel, it was a place for them to overcome something in themselves. He was teaching them a lesson that required them to be in that place for a specific amount of time. Some places they were only there for a little while. And some places they were there for years. But they were there for a specific period of time in order for them to be able to learn what they needed to learn. And then it was time for them to move on. And we can see this so clearly as being an example to our own lives. That we're in a certain place for a period of time. And then it's time for us to move on. We finish what we're doing in one place, in one area of our lives, and then it's time for us to move on. Once we've learned what we need to learn, once we have experienced what we need to experience, we've suffered what we need to suffer, we have, we have reaped the rewards that we're supposed to get, whatever it is, there are times where it is then we have to understand, let go, and it's time for us to move on. And this is, this is something that is um, very important for us to learn from this list of the stations of the people in the wilderness. The very strong example of exactly this thing, of how he moves us through our lives. And we don't stay in one place very long, sometimes. Sometimes we stay there for a very, you know, we do. But this is something also I would like us to kind of discuss. Have you ever thought about it like that when you read this list? I mean, you read this list of these places and you think, oh, well, here we go again, reiterating all these places. Like, But you have to remember, when the Torah says something, when it gives you a list that might seem like a dry list, there's a reason that's there. Every single thing that is in the Torah is there for a reason, including a list like this. So it's not for us to just memorize, you know, from this place to this place and for this many years or for this many days or months or whatever so that we can get it right on the test. There isn't a test. What it's for is for us to understand why. Why did they go from one place to another? Why did they sit in one place longer than they did in another place? And from that, we can understand about what Hashem does in our own lives. Does that make sense? Do you have some kind of a comment you would like to make? Questions you'd like to ask about that? Nobody?
I mean, even some of the things that happen to the people in some of those places are very good examples to us of things we do. Like, for instance, when they wanted meat, lusting for meat. I mean, this is an example of how we can be gluttonous. It's an example of how we can be dissatisfied with, with what we have. I mean, you know, there are very, very good lessons for us to learn as we read about all of these different places. Okay. Isn't it just trying to tell us the story of what Hashem had them do while they were going through the redemption period? Well, on one level that's true. But, like I said, any time we read the Torah, we have to understand that there are many levels that we're supposed to get many levels of the, of the Torah. And everything in the Torah is for the transformation of our soul. Everything in the Torah is said to us in order for us to understand something for ourselves too. And so as we read about the journey through the wilderness, as we read about them going from place to place like that, we can see that this is like well, hey, this is like a lifetime. This is like how he guides us through our own life. That each place that we, we come to, there's something we're supposed to learn. There's something that we're supposed to either overcome or accept. There's some area there. Each part of the list is like a mini-story. And that is very true. Each part of the list is a mini-story. And there was something very specific about each place that was the reason that Hashem took them to that specific place for that particular lesson in their lives. And this is another thing that we can see as being the way that He will arrange the circumstances in our lives that will be put in a certain place with certain people and we're supposed to learn something from that that nothing is a coincidence just like we see this very obvious direction of the people's lives going from one station to the next it's very clear that Hashem was directing that and one of the things that we're supposed to get from this is that just like that Somebody's playing with the. Somebody's playing with the my dot here, just like that. Um, we're supposed to understand that our lives are also directed by Hashem. That nothing that happens to us from place to place, so on and so forth, is a coincidence. How many, yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't get the whole list up here. There were, let me get this. How many stations? There were 42 stations. 
They stayed at 14 the first year before the spies were sent and eight the 40th year after Aaron's death. Hence, in the remaining 38 years, they were at 20 stations. At one station, Kadesh, they camped for 19 years. And this is what I was saying. Sometimes Hashem left them in one place for a long time. So they were there for 19 years. So the rest of the 19 stations were basically an average of a year encampment at each station. And so for each station, there was a spiritual plan. There was a spiritual thing that Hashem was trying to accomplish with the people. Now, interestingly, when we go to the last part of Parshat uh, Maseh, um, I'm not really going to go into that because I want to really dwell on this tomorrow night, is about the cities of refuge and the, uh, the um, unintentional murderer. This is something that I want to talk about in more depth tomorrow night. Um, and you might be wondering, how does that have, what does that have to do with healing? But believe me, we're going to learn about healing. This, this right here, the list of the different stations, is also something that we can see from a perspective of healing. Of being able to see the hand of Hashem directing our lives. That's very much a part of um, the mindset of understanding about healing where we can understand how there's so many things that can happen that are beyond what we could possibly think. I mean, it's like, it's very, very broad. And Hashem is limitless in the possibilities. So, we're going to go to the next tomorrow night. We're going to talk about cities of refuge and about the, the um, unintentional murderer and do that also from a perspective of healing. So is there any other comment or questions? Does anybody have? Oh, Dina, I, I see that you uh, you said it was you. Sorry. It's okay. Okay. None there, Alan and Eileen? I see Colleen is writing us something.
Okay, Judges 11. How could Yaftan's vow be accepted since God hates human sacrifice? Well, there is a, um, what we call Mashlochet, um, disagreement about what exactly happened with his daughter. One idea is that she was like, um, not actually sacrificed, but she was like secluded. She never married, she was secluded, um, and became like a hermit. That she wasn't literally sacrificed. But even so, that's a very, very good example of rash vows. And the, the Tanakh brings that exactly for that reason, to show the damage of a vow like that. Okay, I thank you for joining me and I hope that all of you will be back tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. We will be studying the same Parsha, um, different section of it from the perspective of healing. And thank you for all of you for being here.